working through John's Gospel over the summer, and this is the last in our series of John's Gospel. And John records seven key miracles that Jesus performed and uses them as signs to point to who Jesus is. Now, he makes the point at the end of his gospel, saying that if all of the miracles that Jesus had performed were written down, there wouldn't be enough books to contain them. The world would not have enough books to contain them. So he's not saying these were the only seven or these were the only seven that he saw, but he was saying that these are examples of some of the miracles Jesus performed, and they point to who he is. Uh, John gives us this wonderful uh, view of Jesus in the very first chapter of John's Gospel, and he talks about Jesus being the one through whom and for whom the whole cosmos was made, that he's always existed before with the Father. He's the Word made flesh. Uh, But then John goes on to unfold to us a picture of Jesus who also comes close up, very near to ordinary people. In fact, Jesus especially shows the love of God to the people who are right on the edge of society, the lepers who the religious leaders of those days wouldn't even touch. He reaches out to the prostitutes. He reaches out to those who would have been seen as sinners, the tax collectors who were always ripping people off. He reaches out to everyone in love with the love of God. And I think John captures the love of God in Christ. Um, It's thought that John, who wrote this gospel, was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, a fisherman by trade, the son of Zebedee. Wouldn't it be great to have a dad called Zebedee? (laughs) And he was probably the youngest disciple and probably the disciple who he refers to in his own gospel as the one who Jesus loved. He's likely to have been the youngest of the disciples, and perhaps he had a very affectionate kind of like younger brother relationship with Jesus. He certainly captured Jesus's heart, and he witnessed many of his extraordinary miracles. He lived and worked closely with Jesus for the three years of Jesus's public ministry. These words in John's gospel are not fiction. When I was on my sabbatical last year, I um, took some time to study John's Gospel. And I took the train from London to Manchester to a library called John Ryland's Library. And there I saw uh, the, the oldest portion of the New Testament that we have recovered from antiquity. And it was a portion of John's Gospel from A.D. 125, which was probably only 30 or so years, 30 or 35 years after the original first John's Gospel was written down. And there is so much evidence for what's written in our Gospels, having historical validity, if we care to look into that. So these are things that happened. And as we look on this last Sunday uh, through our series, Signs, at the seventh sign that Jesus uh, performed, recorded in John's Gospel, the seventh miracle. It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which you've already had the story told to you, I think, in the the kids' talk. And it's probably the most dramatic of all. The seventh miracle, the seventh sign recorded in John's Gospel out of the countless miracles that Jesus performed in his life. I'm going to read a, a shortened edited version of John chapter 11, verses 1 to 53. Now, a man named Lazarus, was sick. He was from Bethany, also the home of Mary and Martha, his sisters. They sent word to Jesus, the one you love is sick. 
When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. It's for the glory of God, that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you to death. And yet you're going back there? Then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. So that you may believe. But let's go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, we might as well go with him. Let's go also. And maybe we'll die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, and Mary stayed at home. As she saw Jesus, she ran to him and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she'd said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed after her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, look how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and prayed, Father, I thank you that you have already heard me. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. From that day on, 
they plotted to take his life. What a dramatic miracle that has wide repercussions in its wake. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were loved by Jesus. They were a family who were close to him in friendship. We come across Martha and Mary in Luke's gospel, and it says that Martha opened her home to Jesus. And so Jesus came, we presume regularly, because the friendship had built up to a point where all they needed to do was send a message to Jesus saying, the one you love is sick. And he knew who they meant. They meant their brother Lazarus. Yet, even though Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, he stays where he is two more days. Now, imagine what that would have been like for Mary and Martha. They're nursing their sick brother. He's getting sicker and sicker. He's sinking away from them. And finally, he dies. Jesus has still not arrived. Why the delay? Have you ever been in a situation, maybe you're in one right now, where you're crying out to God for help and there's a delay? It seems like no answer is coming. And sometimes even that makes you feel that you, you can't trust God. You're doubting God himself because you can't understand what's happening in the situation you're in. That's what it was like for Mary and Martha. After two days, Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. There's no doubt that going back to Judea would have meant danger for Jesus. He was a wanted man by then. The disciples knew this only too well, and they point out quickly that only recently a group of Jews tried to stone Jesus to death in Judea. Added to that, the village of Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. Now, all through the Gospels, we understand that Jesus had a lot of challenge from the group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. But actually in Jerusalem were the leaders who actually had the political power to arrest Jesus. And so coming close to Jerusalem, when he was already wanted by the religious authorities, was dangerous. The Pharisees, you see, didn't have the political power to arrest Jesus. But they opposed Jesus strongly both to him and also to the authorities who did. It seemed, though, that Jesus had a different view of time and of danger. He'd already talked before about as long as there was daylight, he must do the Father's work. He'd talked before about his time had not yet come. He wanted to reassure his disciples that nothing would happen to them without God knowing about it and without it being the right time for those events to happen. Jesus knew his own death lay ahead of him, and he'd been trying to warn his disciples about that. He was acting all through his life, and not least in the last few weeks of his life, in step with the Father's will and the Father's timing. And there's something about this particular delay that's going to magnify the miracle that's coming Jesus says, Lazarus is dead, but for your sake, I'm actually glad I wasn't there. So that what? So that you may believe. More glory is going to go to God because of the delay. Faith will come to people. God's work will be accelerated. And those who have open hearts 
will see through this miracle the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They will understand better who he is and they will believe. The question for us is, when we experience delay, can we look to Jesus with faith and trust? Or do we allow things not working out in the way that we'd hoped and wanted as quickly as we'd hoped and wanted? Do we lose trust that God has a good plan for our lives? Can we believe even when we never understand why things work out the way they do, that God actually can bring good out of our tragedy and out of our difficulties? When Jesus arrives near Bethany, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four whole days. That was time for the body to begin to decay. Now there can be no doubt at all that Lazarus is well and truly dead, right? He's been wrapped in grave bandages. He's been put onto a stone ledge in a tomb cut into the rock. And a large circular stone has been rolled over the front of the cave. Many, many people have gathered to the home of Martha to mourn with Martha and Mary over the death of their brother. The first three days of intense mourning, according to Jewish custom, have already been carried out. Still today, in many cultures, there are rituals, there's protocol for how people mourn and grieve for the loss of their dead. And it can be a very public affair. No one is going to be able to claim afterwards that Jesus just came along and resuscitated Lazarus. Lazarus is well and truly dead and has already been mourned for for several days. So can you begin to see that how the miracle that Jesus is about to perform is growing in size with every hour that passes? Can you see the purpose in the delay? It's not only death that's going to be reversed when Jesus goes on to raise Lazarus. It's also decay. Jesus is going to demonstrate his absolute authority and power, not only over sickness, but also over death and decay in our worlds. He's going to point to the fact that one day, through faith in him, there will be many sons and daughters raised to glory. There will be new bodies for those who have died in faith in Jesus. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, peace and joy, where there's no death, no decay, no mourning, no crying. But for now, there's still grief and loss. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I do know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. She's grieving deeply, but what extraordinary faith and hope she articulates to Jesus in those words. I know that even now, God will give you what you ask. Despite her if only, she's looking to Jesus in faith, believing that even now he could bring good out of this terrible tragedy. Can't he? Will he? She's looking to him in faith. And the question for us is, when we hit times of trouble, can we look to Jesus in faith and hope and trust that somehow he will bring good out of our tragedy? You see, when we face difficult times, and there's no such thing as a trouble-free life, is there? 
We all face trouble, we all face difficulty, we all face grief and loss. But when we face these difficulties, if we look to Jesus in faith, then our faith is refined, like gold is refined when it goes through the fire. And scripture tells us that faith is of greater worth than gold. As we look to Jesus in the challenges that we face, our faith emerges out of those challenges stronger, purer, more able to guide us through life with greater hope and greater courage. As Jesus talks with Martha, he asks her questions to try and establish what the limits of her faith in him actually are. He starts with a statement. He says, your brother will rise again. And she replies, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day. The majority of Jews believed that at that time, that there would be a resurrection of the dead at the end of history. With the exception, actually, of the Sadducees, who didn't believe that. But they were the exception. So she believed what many of the Jews believed, that there would be a resurrection of the dead at the end of history. But then Jesus says some of the most pivotal words in the whole of the Bible to her. He looks her in the eye and he says these famous words. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Because Martha's already looking to Jesus in faith, and because she trusts that his words are true, in fact, his words have been proven to be true as she's listened to him and seen what he's done over time, she now makes one of the greatest statements of faith in the entire New Testament. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. She believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was promised in the Old Testament scriptures, the one whom the Jews by then were longing for, many of them looking for, someone to come and save them, to redeem them. And looking back, we know not only the saviour of the Jewish people, but the saviour of the whole world. Let's pause for a moment to think about this. At this point, Martha still has a dead and decaying brother. Yet she's looking into the face of Jesus. She's listening to his words and she believes his words when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. She sees in Jesus, not death, but life. She believes that he's the only one who can give eternal life. Jesus had said This is eternal life, that they may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Jesus is our hope for this life, for sure, but he's also our hope for life after death. He's the one that gives indestructible, everlasting life now as we put our faith in him, that then goes on beyond death through all eternity. The first time I was at a funeral service and I heard these famous words of Jesus spoken, I was covered in goosebumps because you see a coffin there and death is so final, isn't it? It's a rude interruption to life. Death robs us of the people we love. There's something in us that is indignant against death. 
We hate it. We don't want it. Neither does God. Neither does God. God sends his own son into the world to save the world from sin and death. And when I hear those words, I am the resurrection and the life, that are normally said at most Christian funerals, right? The first time I heard those at a funeral service, looking at a coffin and hearing those words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Everything inside me wanted to shout, yes, I believe. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. Jesus is the giver of eternal life. Do you believe this? Martha, in those moments, said she believed. She rushes back to the house to tell Mary that Jesus has arrived and is asking for her. And as Mary gets up quickly and goes out of the house, the large crowd of relations, friends, acquaintances, anyone who ever knew Lazarus, that's how mourning goes in the Middle Eastern culture. Everybody comes, not only the Middle Eastern culture, right, in many cultures represented here. Everybody comes, big funerals and a big protocol for mourning. A large crowd, much larger than there would have been if there hadn't been a delay in Jesus' response to the cry for help. They follow Mary and Martha because they think they're going to the tomb to mourn there. What's going to happen next happens in public with many, many people looking on. Mary, when she sees Jesus, greets him by falling at his feet and pouring out the same comment that Martha did. Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She's beside herself with grief. She is crying her heart out. When Jesus sees her and the Jews with her weeping and wailing and making such a noise because of the loss of Lazarus, Jesus' own grief is expressed as well. Jesus loved Lazarus. He is deeply moved and troubled in his spirit. He's indignant against death, having robbed them of this close friend. But his own grief is very real as well. He already knows what he's going to do, but in these moments, Lazarus is still cut off from them all. Our Christian belief in life after death, in life everlasting through faith in Jesus, doesn't negate our need to grieve when people we love die. Jesus famously said in his Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So God has a special interest in reaching out to those who are grieving the loss of someone they loved. And he does that and continues to do that as people reach out to him. God wants to bless and comfort all those who are mourning. In these moments, Jesus wept his own tears for the love of his friend Lazarus. And he joined with the weeping community. He identified with their grief and shared in their pain. And he does the same through his spirit today. He identifies with our grief. He shares in our struggles. He knows our pain. 
But now a remarkable drama unfolds. Jesus orders that the stone in front of the tomb be rolled away. And Martha, even though she's just made this amazing statement of faith in who Jesus is, gives a gut instinctive reaction, okay, like we often do without thinking. She says, no, don't open the tomb, it's going to stink. And Jesus looks at her, I believe, with eyes of love and says, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they roll the stone away. And Jesus looks up to heaven and he prays, thank you, Father, that you've already heard me. And it says in in the full text that he did that for the benefit of the people standing there, not for his own benefit. Because what we see from that prayer is that Jesus had clearly been praying all along, ever since he got the message that Lazarus was sick. He's been praying for his friend Lazarus. And isn't that the secret of how he did everything perfectly according to the Father's will and according to the Father's timing? He would wait. At times he withdrew from the crowds and at other times he went straight into a situation where there were many who needed to be healed from the sick. He moved with God in all that God was doing. And that prayer really challenges us, it challenges me, to think about how we pray and whether we're offering our lives continually to God through prayer. I'm not talking necessarily about hours in prayer, I'm talking about an attitude of the heart where we're saying, God, I trust you. I want to walk in faith with you this day and every day. And perhaps then we'll begin to sense more of the Father's will in our lives and even be able to dare to have faith and hope when we face tragedy. Then Lazarus calls out in a loud voice. Then, sorry, Jesus calls out in a loud voice. Lazarus, come out! Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Lazarus for a minute. (laughs) We don't know what Lazarus' last memories of life were. He would have been aware at first that he was very sick and becoming more sick. Perhaps he already had gone through the process of saying goodbye to all of his closest relatives before death took him. But now he is jolted back to life. Blood's flowing again in his muscles. His heart is beating. He must have been pretty stiff, lying on that stone shelf. (laughs) And anyway, he's restricted because he's wrapped in all these grave clothes that are like bandages all around his body, and there's a cloth over his face. But he hears Jesus saying, Lazarus, come out. Now, it's hard to hear what people are saying outside a cave if you're inside a cave. So Jesus bellows it out. And Lazarus hears the voice he recognizes, the voice he loves, calling his name. And you know that's what Jesus does for us when he brings us to faith in him. We hear his voice calling our name, not literally in our ears, but in our hearts we sense that Jesus is calling us to trust him, to believe in him. And here, Jesus is calling Lazarus back to life. Lazarus must have rolled off that stone ledge that he was lying on and staggered towards the light at the entrance of the cave. And as he burst out into the sunlight, 
still with the grave cloth over his face. What surrounded him? Faces aghast. Looks of wonder, looks of fear, looks of faith, and some looks of disbelief. And in the middle of it all, Jesus, the Lord of life, the victor over death, who has taken control in this tragedy, says something very practical. For goodness sake, will someone unwrap him from his bandages and let him go? (laughs) There's a mixed reaction amongst the people who see this miracle happening live in front of their eyes. It seems extraordinary to us. Now, in reality, many, many, many of them put their faith in Jesus when they see that miracle. But not all of them. Some of them go to the Pharisees and tell the Pharisees what Jesus has just done, knowing that that will stoke the fires of their opposition against Jesus. The Pharisees then go to the chief priests And they call a meeting of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which is the Jewish high court. And you can read about this in John chapter 12. And from that day onwards, they plot to take Jesus' life. A double danger is introduced into the story because as time goes on, Lazarus' life becomes endangered as well because so many of the Jews are putting their faith in Jesus on account of Lazarus's story. The raising of Lazarus not only results in life where there was death, but it points to Jesus's own death and resurrection, which is soon to come. It's this dramatic miracle that triggers off a whole chain reaction of events that lead Jesus to the cross. The time for Jesus's death and resurrection draws nearer. Soon Jesus will take on the powers of sin, sickness, evil, darkness, death, and decay. He will fight against them, and he will win. Death will not be able to hold him. The Father will raise him from the dead on the third day, not to a temporarily lengthened life like Lazarus had, but to an indestructible life, winning eternal life for all those who put their faith in him. What does it look like to have faith and hope in Jesus from day to day in our ordinary lives? Well, I came across an extraordinary story of faith and hope a few weeks ago. Many of us would uh, be already be aware of the uh, Chilean mining disaster of 2010, where 33 people survived underground for an extraordinary length of time before they were rescued. Jose Andriquez was the former drill master and had worked for 33 years in that mine in Chile. Every morning, being a Christian, he had prayed, God, let me have faith and trust in you. I put my hope in you today. Protect me as I work in the mine. But on that one eventful day, when the mine shaft collapsed, he was buried along with 32 others, 2,000 feet below the ground, three miles from the entrance to that mine. Being a Christian, he turned to Jesus. He put his faith and his hope in Jesus and he encouraged everyone else who was trapped with him in a shelter deep below the earth to put their trust and hope in Jesus. 
They knew they had nowhere else to turn. They knew there was very little chance of them coming out alive. But he stayed calm. He got them all to show what resources they had that they brought down into the mine with them. And between them, they had enough food to last only for three days. So he had the idea that they should ration it out to reduce their risk of dying of thirst and hunger too soon. Every day, twice a day, he brought people together to comfort and encourage each other as they were battling hunger and thirst beneath the earth. He encouraged them to pray to God for a miracle. On the 16th day, the food ran out. On the 17th day, they heard the sound of a drill head above them. Have you noticed how God specializes in 11th hour answers to prayer? (laughs) This was one of those. And down through a very small hole in the rock came a probe at the end of the 17th day, to which they were able to attach a note which said this, all 33 of us are well inside the shelter. It took a further 52 days in total before the miners would be released from their rock cage and see the sunlight again. But in that time through supply tubes, they, were, they received food and essential water supplies. And during the rescue mission, a whole camp was set up above ground called Camp Hope. It was set up as a sign of hope and faith that these men would one day come out alive. And they did. Isn't it an extraordinary story? A story of faith and hope in the face of danger and death. But you know, none of us can really live without hope, even from day to day. Hope is what motivates us. The trouble is sometimes we put our hope in things that actually can't give us a lasting hope. But Jesus gives us hope not only for this life, purpose and hope for now through friendship with him, but also hope beyond the grave. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's conquered sin and death for you and I. Do you believe this? Maybe you do believe, but right now you're facing huge challenges and that undermines your faith because you've been praying to God for an answer, praying to God for help, but there's a delay. So far, the answer hasn't come. I want to invite you today to reach out to Jesus that through his spirit, he would give you faith and hope to trust him that somehow, even though you may never understand the reason for the challenge that you're facing, God is going to bring great good out of your difficulties. Or perhaps you're here today, and this is always the case in our community, that there are a number of people among us who are just searching, just looking into faith. They're not sure what they believe yet about God or about Jesus. Or maybe you've just got loads of doubts and loads of questions. Perhaps you had faith, and faith has escaped your grasp for a while. I want to invite you to consider doing Alpha, which we run every term here at the Catford site. And we're starting again in the first week of October on Thursday evenings for eight Thursday evenings and one Saturday. And on Alpha, there's no pressure to believe something, but there's an opportunity to discover something for yourself. Because you can ask any question, you can explore who is Jesus, why did he die? How can we be sure of faith? 
So if you want to find out more about that, please do go to the welcome desk at the end of the meeting where there's more information. Will we live with faith and hope in this life? Or with doubt and fear? Will we look to Jesus as Martha did and say, yes, Lord, I believe?